All right. Here, let me grab this guy. Ooh. Oh, it's on wheels. All right. I was like, I don't know if I'm that strong. Well, good morning, guys. I'm going to move forward a little bit. So I hope that doesn't mess up your sound. Um, man, I needed that. I don't know about you. Um, thank you, Paul. Uh, yeah, so many times, uh, so I pastor a church down in Orange County, and so many times um, my head is just spinning with, uh, you know, this situation or this person or this family or why isn't that light working or something tech or, you know, giving finances and all that kind of stuff. And it was, it's, it's honestly so refreshing for me just to worship with you. Uh, it just feels uh, my soul needed it. So, well, hey, I don't believe that anyone is here uh, by accident. And so one of our values down at our church down in um, uh, SoCal is that we want to bother people every Sunday. So we didn't, we, we're, I, I, we don't believe that, you know, we come to church on Sunday just to uh, do Christian karaoke, singing some songs together, and then hearing a little TED talk, and then going home uh, feeling good about ourselves, right? Because we did our little, uh, you know, penance for the week or whatever. We, we want to be able to talk about some things uh, that hopefully will bother you today that hopefully will uh, kind of eat at you throughout the day, not in a guilt or shame kind of way, but man, you know, we're, we're going we're to get a picture of how Jesus lived. And I, I want us to think the rest of the day and the rest of the week of, man, do I live like that? Like, do I really do that? Or do I just go to church and do church stuff? So I hope this bothers you in a really good way. And if you get upset about anything we talk about today, just email Jason. All right, uh, I, I can get you his email address. I can get you his home address. You can just stop by his house and let him know uh, all the things you're upset about. Uh, but no, so years ago, uh, a few years ago, we took our family to Rome. And one of the most impacting moments, any of you guys that have ever been to Rome, a couple of things that really stuck out. One, we went to the, uh, where, where Paul was held in prison right off the forum, uh, right in the, kind of in the heart of Rome, and we sat in the cell that they believe Paul was actually in prison, and they, he would he would baptize other prisoners who would become believers in this little uh, like water that would drip out from the wall, essentially. Uh, that was like just an amazing thing. And then the other thing was was going in the catacombs, and in the catacombs. Our tour guide, it's a kind of a joke in our family, but the tour guide uh, said catacombs. So we, we, that's how we, that's how it's always said. Anyways, we were, we were in the catacombs and we were, um, they were talking about how they would have church down there, right? So in the middle, it was essentially a crypt, right? And on the wall was engraved, it's behind plexiglass now, so kids don't chip at it or whatever. But in, in the wall engraved was, is, is Petros for Peter, Paulos, right? Essentially, they're almost like taking notes from church services they had in the catacombs, in the catacombs. And uh, it was just, it just reminded my wife and I that what we believe is not a flannel graph. What we believe is not a board book. It's not a cartoon. It's not a myth. What we believe is anchored in reality. It's anchored in history. And so, you know, when you go to like a theme park or and they, you pay 50 bucks and they draw like a caricature of you, right? And so they'll draw you maybe 75 bucks if you want it to be color, you know? And, and it's like, and they'll, they'll, whatever your, whatever feature of your face you're most insecure about, they'll exaggerate it, right? They'll make your chin bigger, nose or whatever, right? And it, it, it kind of looks like you, but it kind of doesn't. And I feel like that's the way when we picture Jesus, 
That's the way we see him. And I want to give us a real picture of what the, what the scripture says is Jesus is like. And some of the history, maybe some things that we've read that, that Jesus has said, and we don't kind of understand why he said it. I'm going to give some history, historical context for us to go, oh, that's what it meant to a first century. Because when we read scripture, it doesn't matter what we say all the time. When I grew up, uh, sorry, when I grew up in, uh, in the church, it would say, what does this Bible verse mean to you? Who cares what it means to you? What does the Bible verse mean? Like, what does it mean to the people they were writing to? So a lot of times when we think about Jesus, we think about pictures like this. I don't know if you want to put that first slide up. We think of this, right? Airbrushed, Pantene, herbalescence hair, right? It's very Swedish looking, beauty pageant sash, petting a, a lamb, almost like floating like he's on wheels, right? Kind of has that soap opera, kind of soft kind of vibe to him. And that's, this is not Jesus. This is not who he is. One of my friends, his name is Austin Hajavani, right? And he looks like you would cast him as like a terrorist in in like a Jack Bauer movie, right? Like this is who he is. And so we would travel all the time because we were doing video stuff back in the day. And and he would, especially post 9-11, he, you, you guys should take that down if you want. Uh, he, um, he, or you can keep it up, I don't care. Uh, he would get pulled out of security lines all the time, right? As, and, and for random security checks, right? But he was the only one that would get pulled out, him and you know, people that looked like him. And I think Jesus didn't look like that. Jesus looked more like my friend from the Middle East, dark-skinned. You know, he worked a lot of hard years as a tradesman. He probably had, uh, he didn't have cubicle hands. He didn't have white collar hands, right? He probably had really rough hands and thick skin. And what's so crazy is that we read a lot of things that Jesus said, and we just don't understand in context as we're reading it 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet. And the thing is, what Jesus said was so dangerous, so dangerous. And so today I want to talk about Christ and the world he lived in. The goal is for us to leave with a deeper admiration for who Jesus was or who Jesus is. And I also want us to think about how we approach opposition, how we approach fear in our lives. Because you're as young as you'll ever be. And what God has called you to do, only you can do. So are you doing it? Or are you giving in to fear? Today I want to encourage you in a way, like literally put courage into you to say, man, live your life. Be faithful to what God has called you to do. So one day on the other side of eternity, you can hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful. Faithful, when you didn't want to do what God asked you to do when everyone else didn't do, when you didn't feel like doing it anymore, when all the emotions were gone, but you did it anyways. You pushed past insecurity and fear and comfort, and you did it anyways. So we're going to start. We're going to read through a bunch of scripture. We're going to talk about a lot of history. So if you're like a history buff, man, you're going to love this morning. Hopefully it's a little interesting. So we're going to start in 40 B.C. 40 B.C. Talk about Herod the Great. Herod the Great goes to Rome, and he gets the title uh, from Caesar. Do you know what they call him? Anyone know? Seriously? King of the what? Do you guys know? King of the Jews. He's a monarch. King of the Jews. Right? So he's under Rome, but he's over Israel. He wasn't a nice guy. Actually, actually, Herod the Great's life was an absolute mess. He was married 10 or 11 times, had 43 kids that we know of, 43 kids. The wife he loved the most was actually a second wife, a, a gal by the name of Miriam. Miriam gave him five kids in seven years. Can you imagine? Five kids in seven years. And then one day, Herod felt like, Herod the Great felt like he couldn't trust Miriam anymore. So what did he do? Did he confront her? No, he had her executed. True story. He had her executed. 
And just because he thought that his favorite wife, Miriam's mom, might have been influencing her, he had her mom executed too. Later on, two of his sons, of his many, you know, 43 kids, two of his sons were getting a little ambitious, he thought, so he had them executed. Five days before he died, he had a third son executed because he thought he was getting a little ambitious. Really great guy, right? Probably read a lot of parenting books. Caesar Augustus, you know, the Caesar of the time, actually said it'd be better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Now, while just a really great guy, just a biblical uh, picture of, of good fatherhood. When Herod got sick, he actually, um, well, there's no kids here, so I can say it. Technically, he got gangrene of the nether regions. That's how Herod the Great died, right? You can look it up. It's pretty wild. He knew that no one would mourn him because everybody hated him. Everybody hated him. So what he did was he had some of the most influential citizens of Israel imprisoned. He actually put them all in uh, Jericho, right? And he said, when I die, because he knew he was on his last uh, days, he said, when I die, execute them. The most loved people in Israel. He said, execute them so that there would be mourning in Israel when he died. Now, thankfully, his soldiers didn't listen to him. So when he died, they're like, hey, you guys can go. He's crazy. You guys, you guys can leave. It's a true story. When he died, he left seven different wills. So they didn't actually know who was going to take over, right? This was like kind of an Iron Throne situation, right? So they, they weren't quite sure which of his three main sons uh, would actually take over. A guy named Herod Antipas, which we'll talk about, Archelaus, and Philip. Actually, their names are Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, and Herod Philip. Kind of like George Foreman situation, where like all their kids were named George. All their kids were named Herod, whatever. So Herod Antipas, Archelaus, Archelaus and Philip. So first we're talking about Archelaus. Archelaus, uh, he goes to Rome right away to say, hey, my dad died, as you know, Caesar. Uh, can you make me king of the Jews now? Can you make me a monarch? But Herod doesn't do that. Recently, right before he went to go see Caesar, he uh, had 3,000 Israelites slaughtered. Slaughtered. Like there were cattle in the temple area during Passover in Jerusalem. And when I found out, if you were in Israel during Passover, you knew that it was very dangerous to talk about kingdom. It was very dangerous to talk about another kingdom outside of Roman rule, especially during Passover, especially in Jerusalem. So, so Israel, Archelaus goes to see Caesar. Israel sends a delegation too. Israel sends a delegation to Rome to tell Caesar, hey, we don't want this guy to be our king. What's interesting is they go, to, they go to Caesar and they actually say, will you lead us directly? We don't need a mini-man. We don't need a monarch. You don't need a king of the Jews. We'll just report to Rome directly. The reason why this is a, such a big deal is because they would rather, they hated Herod and his kids so much, they would rather be led by a pagan Caesar who believed he was God. Think about that. They would rather serve a leader who believed that he was God then serve one of Herod's boys. That's a huge deal. So, Caesar's not the kind of guy to be pushed around if you read anything about Caesar Augustus. So, Caesar actually told uh, the, the, the delegation, thanks but no thanks, uh, Archelaus is going to be the leader of your area. And so, Archelaus found out about the delegation of 50 men. So, he brought them in in front of him and had them all executed, beheaded, actually. 
Again, great guy. So Joseph and Mary, fast forward, Joseph and Mary flee, uh, go to Egypt to flee Herod the Great. Remember that? Then Herod dies, right? They hear that Herod dies. But then let's read it in Matthew 2. Hopefully this changes the Christmas story for you a little bit. It says this, But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, see now some of the points are connecting here, he was afraid to go there. Joseph was afraid to go because Archelaus was reigning in Judea. Why? Because he's heard the stories, right? So, having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to a district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled that was said through the prophets, he will be a Nazarene. We'll go to Luke chapter 19. Fast forward a bit. It says this, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. And then he begins to tell a story that some of us have heard. And there's variations throughout the different Gospels, but essentially is a story of stewardship, right? And here's, here's how it goes. This is verse 12. He said a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Sound familiar? Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. Okay, we, we get this story. We heard this story. But then comes a the part that would, be, would make no sense to us, but would make a ton of sense to the, the first century here. It says, verse 14. But his people hated him, sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. See, Jesus is taunting Archelaus. Everyone knew what Jesus was talking about. There was no, it wasn't a metaphor, right? Goes on, next verse. Or after the whole stewardship thing, that we, that's a different sermon. Verse 27, at the end of the story, says, Yes, the king replied, And to those who use well what they are given, more will, even more will be given. We get that. But from those who do nothing, even what they little have, they have will be taken away. Then in verse 27, again, another addendum that we would not understand unless we knew context. But his hearers understood fully what was happening. Verse 27, And for those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. This is exactly what happened. So what does he say? Very next verse, verse 28. After telling this story, Jesus went on towards Jerusalem, went on towards where Archelaus is leading, ahead of his disciples. I love that Luke wrote that, ahead of his disciples, because he just taunted the leader, the leader who just executed 50 of the people that tried to come against his leadership. The disciples are going, this is not a good idea, Jesus. So what does it say? Jesus walked on ahead. He's dad walking, right? Fast walking in front of the disciples. And the disciples are like, okay, maybe we should slow this down a little bit, talk through our strategy. Jesus knows what he's doing. This is not flannel graph Jesus. This is not herbal essence hair Jesus. We'll go on to the next part. He goes up to Jerusalem. Do you know what time it is in Jerusalem? It's Passover. It's Passover. Man, you don't go to Passover and talk about kingdom. You don't go to the temple in Jerusalem during Passover and talk about kingdom. Thousands of people died that way. And we're going to end today at the end of this whole thing in Luke chapter 13 where he talks about my favorite thing that Jesus ever said. And he says, go tell that fox. Go tell that fox. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But man, that is the best thing that Jesus ever said. And it sums up the whole gospel, but kind of put a pin in that. Luke chapter 3 says this. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius the Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas, ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Bacteria and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. 
So this is the who's who. This is the directory. This is the most influential people on Instagram of the day. Right? Then it says this. At that time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the palace, who was living with great power and prestige and platform. No, he was living in the wilderness. He's a hobo. So who did the word of the Lord come to? Who did the Spirit of God come to? Caesar? One of Herod's guys? One of the chief priests, maybe? The religious and the governmental leaders of the day? Annas and Caiaphas? No. The word of the Lord came to an unwashed, untitled, rag-wearing, locust-eating hermit. In the reign of Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod, the word of the Lord came to a guy with no credentials, no clout. He didn't know the right people. Because when the kingdom of God comes, things all start to get mixed up. Who God uses and who we think God can't use. See, the weird thing about it is all of us at some level have counted ourselves out of being used by God. Right? You're too young until you're too old. If I was just, if I just looked like, if I just had those gifts, I just, then I could. I, I, I'm not, I, I can't be used by God because, and you think about all the reasons why, and now with social media and the fact that we're connected to someone halfway around the world that you never would have even known about, but they're so talented. And we look at them, well, how could God use me? Because I'm not like, I don't have the influence, I don't have the clout, I don't have the prestige. I never went to seminary. I, neither did John. And the word of God came to someone that by all intents and purposes, we would say, no, no way. No way. So maybe you're someone with a title. Maybe you're someone not. And the message is, the message here is that anyone can be a kingdom bringer. That the kingdom of God is not based on ability, but on availability. Are you available? Or are you making excuses? Are you making, are you done? Are you done making excuses? Are you, are you done giving reasons of why God can't use you? You ready to be used by God? So John starts telling everyone to repent, including Herod. Man, that's not a wise thing. Read at Luke chapter 3, verse 19. It says, John also publicly criticized Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying who? Herodias. Kind of a weird name, right? He married Herodias. Why is that a big deal? Because it's his brother's wife. We'll talk more about that. Herod Antipas marries Herodias, his brother's wife. And for many other things, but that's kind of the, on the top of the list. So Herod put John in prison, adding this sin to the many others that he already did. So Herod is annoyed by John, but Herod also is very intrigued by John. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, it says, When Jesus heard about John being put in prison, he returned to Galilee. This is interesting. So Jesus has been in Judea preaching the gospel. It's about like a three-hour drive. They obviously didn't drive in the day, so it's a multiple-day journey walking from Galilee to Jerusalem or vice versa. So Jesus is preaching in Judea, and he hears about John being imprisoned by Herod Antipas in Galilee. So where does Jesus go? Galilee. Why? Because that's where God's calling him to go. If it were any of us, we would go, okay, go anywhere but Galilee. It's dangerous in Galilee. We'll pray for John, but man, we are not going to Galilee. That would be dumb. So Jesus is saying, though, you think you can shut this message down by putting John in prison? We're going to talk. See, the message of the people that God calls, the people that say yes to God using them, isn't God, get me out of trouble. That's not the message of, the, of, of kingdom bringers. The message of kingdom bringers is send me. Send me. The people that God sends, God sends the most urgent, the most needed, the most desperate. And what that means practically 
Is this the areas where there's the, the greatest problems, the greatest inconvenience, the greatest discomfort, and the greatest danger? So if you want to be used by God, we can't ask, is this difficult? Of course it is. Is it inconvenient? Of course it is. Is it uncomfortable? Is it costly? Of course it is. So many times Christians want comfort, right? My guess is the seats that you're sitting in are your seats, right? I don't know you well enough when my first time here, but my guess is you have a place that you sit. Sometimes we'll have our elders at our church sit in seats that we know other people sit in normally. Get to before church and sit in their seats to disrupt it. There's times where we'll stand up in the middle of a sermon and go, everyone find a new seat on the other side of the sanctuary. Because you got to get uncomfortable. We can get in a rut as Christians, as people. What's so wild is people wait in line for BTS tickets or for the latest iPhone or latest device, but man, come to church. I don't know about you guys up here, but in, in Orange County, man, it's like a three-degree window where it's not too hot or too cold, right? Man, oh, man, 68, that's pretty chill. I'd probably stay home and watch it online today. 81, oh my gosh, the heat wave. Let's, let's stay home today. 77, it's so nice out. Let's skip church and go to the park today. But it's like, what, what, what does it need to be for you actually to go to church? Anyways, so when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been thrown into prison by Herod Antipas, he walks right into the lion's den. Right? This is, again, this is not herbal essence, Jesus. So let's talk about Herod Antipas, the guy that Jesus is engaging with now. Herod Antipas' first marriage is to the daughter of the king of his neighboring and most dangerous enemy, the king of Nabatia. And so Herod marries his daughter to just have an alliance, to go, hey, if I marry your daughter, will you not attack me? Right? So the problem is uh, he doesn't love her. Another problem is he falls in love with a girl named Herodias, which is his brother Philip's wife. So he's married. She's married. She's married to his, his, his brother. Uh, his current wife is giving him protection uh, from his biggest enemy. And another one is that she is actually the daughter of one of his half-brothers. Because remember, his dad had 43 kids between 10 or 11 wives. So that, this is true. If he marries Herodias, Philip's uh, wife, she will be his wife, his niece, and his sister-in-law. This is true. You can, like, Google it, right? And, and so if, if, if she has kids, if he, has, if he marries Herodias and has kids with Herodias, she will be their mother, their aunt, and their cousin. This is really true. I feel like this is, like, happening in West Virginia or something. So Herodias says, okay, I'll marry you. I'll divorce my current wife for you, Herodias, because I love you that much. So he does it. He divorces the little girl of his most powerful enemy. What happens? Well, of course, what happens is his father-in-law, ex-father-in-law, declares war, right? And his ex-father-in-law ends up marching 20,000 men. How many men does Herod have? Herod Antipas? 10,000. 10, he takes 10,000 men against 20,000 men. So let's, with that in mind, let's read Luke chapter 14 and what Jesus said. He talked about don't, don't begin construction, or don't begin until you count the cost. Talk about the cost of discipleship, right? He says, for, for who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Okay, good point. Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started the building and then couldn't afford to finish it. Great. Makes sense. All of us have started projects in our house or been part of seeing seen half-built buildings, and that kind of stayed stagnant. Right? And then he goes on in verse 31. Or what king? Uh-oh. 
Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, I mean, what an idiot, he said. What an idiot. But if he can't, wouldn't he at least send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away? See, what had happened was Herod's 10,000 men got obliterated by the king's 20,000 men. It was humiliating for Herod. So when Jesus said this, no one would be laughing. They'd all be wondering when this guy's going to die. So you don't talk about the king. You don't humiliate the king. It's not like today where you can, on late night TV, make fun of the president or whatever, and it's just funny. You talk against the king, and this day you die. So Jesus, Jesus lived as if there was another kingdom that he was a part of. Jesus lived as if the kingdom on this earth was ruled by people who have no power over him, as if there was another kingdom that was more real, more important, that everyone couldn't grasp or see. And that perspective gave Jesus incredible courage. Yeah, thank you. So back to Luke chapter 7, background on politics. So if I say today, um, uh, like uh, in regards to politics, uh, donkeys and elephants, right? You would understand what party we're talking about, right? In that day, they, the way they communicated was coins. They didn't have iPhones or internet or newspapers or radio, so they would put an image on a coin to symbolize the power in the area. And people would see that symbol and they know who it represented. Maybe they have a banner or a flag, right? That would represent the leader. So Herod Antipas doesn't put his picture on a coin though. Caesar does because he's Caesar and he rules over a much larger area than just Israel. But Herod Antipas who rules over Jews doesn't put his picture on a coin. Do you know why? Because thou shalt not put a graven image, right? So as crazy as he is, he doesn't want to tick them off that much and violate scripture. So he says, I'm not going to put my image on the coin. Do you know what he puts on the coin? His crest, which is a reed. You can go to Israel today and then, or just Google it, Herod Antipas coin of his era, and it's a reed on the coin. So keep that in mind. Verse, uh, we'll go to Luke 24. It says this. After John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into wilderness to see? So he's talking to John's disciples now, John's followers. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed? Uh-oh. Was he a weak reed, swayed by every breath of the wind? What's he talking about? He's talking about politics. Was, is, did you come out here to see someone swayed by the wind, just back and forth, changing their position? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people who wear expensive, beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Again, who's he talking about? Herod Antipas. Not John. He says, were you looking for a prophet? Yes. And he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom scriptures refer to me when they say that, look, I am sending a messenger ahead of you. He'll prepare a way before you. I tell you, of all the people who have ever lived, none is greater than John. Yes, even the last person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. So he takes the image of Herod. He says he's swayed by the wind. He understands that John never made the cover of GQ. He understands that John doesn't live in palaces. He doesn't wear fine clothes. Who does? Herod Antipas. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying is, hey, you didn't come out here in the wilderness. You didn't walk far outside of town to see that, to see someone in politics, to see someone wearing nice clothes, to see someone that lives in nice homes. That's not what you came out to the wilderness to see, is it? 
You came to see something different. There's something inside of you that hungers for something different. And he's telling the man, don't sell out. You get it. That's why you came out here to the wilderness. When you go back into the city, don't sell out. Don't sell out for power, for fame, for riches, for popularity, for nice clothes. And that can even happen to us as Christians, right? We can sell out. Man, I would follow Jesus, but man, this is just the way we do do stuff at work. I know God has asked me to do stuff a different way, but this is just what we do. This is how we do things at work. This is how we get it done. Man, I, I know God is asking me to do this, but I'd really rather spend that money on this because my friends are all kind of buying that stuff and I don't want to be the person that... But at the end of our lives, at the end of our lives, Jesus isn't going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, your countertop's awesome. Jesus is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm I'm so glad you got the, the better trim level on your car. Well done, good and faithful servant. Your jeans, so nice. The way you did your hair, the way you did your nails, your, your Instagram followers. What in the world? What did you, how did you do that? How did you get that kind of engagement? It's not what Jesus will do. So, go on. Never in rabbinical history before Jesus was there a rabbi who had female disciples. I love this. My wife loves this more than me. But if you look at Luke chapter uh, 8, it says this. It says, Soon after Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God, he took 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits. Along them were Mary Magdalene, from whom had cast out seven demons. Joanna, this is, this is the important one. Joanna, wife of Cusa. Who's she? Herod's business manager. Susanna and many others who were supporting him from their own resources, support uh, Jesus and his disciples. So who's following him in the middle of all these people? Women, first of all, which is a huge deal. And then Joanna, wife of Cusa, the CFO, COO of Herod's operations. Can you imagine the conversations at home between Joanna and, his, and her husband, Cusa? Right? Hey, you know Herod's trying to um, find and kill Jesus, right? Uh, can, you, can you not take our money? Uh, and, and give it to him, right? Like Herod is trying to find and kill Jesus, and he doesn't realize that he's like a platinum sponsor of Jesus's ministry, right? Like he's, like, he's got his logo big on the website, right? The big logo on the t-shirt, right? So go on uh, Luke chapter 9. It says, when Herod Antipas, ruler of Galilee, heard about everything Jesus was doing, he was puzzled. Some were saying that John the Baptist was raised from the dead. Others thought Elijah, it was Jesus was Elijah, one of the other prophets, risen from the dead. He goes, I beheaded John, Herod said. So who is this man I keep hearing about? And he kept trying to see him. And the rest of the gospel of Luke, essentially, is Jesus trying to dodge Herod Antipas. He goes to Bethsaida. And a lot of scholars will agree that whenever it got too hot in Galilee, Jesus would withdraw. So if you ever hear uh, in, in the gospels where it says Jesus withdrew, Many times he went to Bethsaida. And it's not, Bethsaida is not because it's like this hot spring, cool town. It's because, you know who ruled Bethsaida? Philip. Philip. Philip is not going to help Herod Antipas. Remember why? Herod Antipas married Philip's wife, Herodias. So he's like, hang out here as long as you want. Right? And if Herod Antipas is like, hey, can you bring Jesus to me? Don't know any Jesus guy. 
right? So he had safety in Bethsaida. So he's hanging out in Bethsaida, and then the craziest thing happens in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. It says this, At that time, some Pharisees, Pharisees came to him and said, Get away from here if you want to live. What? Herod Antipas wants to kill you. The Pharisees. Now we know they and Jesus did not exactly see eye to eye, but the Pharisees are coming to save Jesus' life. They're giving Jesus some, you know, some life coaching here, right? And this is how Jesus responds. And we get to talk about my favorite verse in the scripture. It says this, verse 32. Jesus replied, go tell that fox. Go tell that fox, I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and then on the third day I will accomplish my purpose. Go tell that fox. Now, when I say the word fox in our culture, what do you think of? What do you think of? Liar, what? Sneaky, like swiper, no swiping. Yeah, sneaky fox. Isn't that weird? Everywhere I talk to that's Western, we say the same thing. In our culture, fox is like sneaky, right? In, in the first century, the ancient writers of that time, foxes were not thought of that way. Foxes were actually seen as wannabe lions. Isn't that interesting? So they were contrasted with lions. You wouldn't talk about a fox without talking about a lion. They were personified that way. Lions would make the kill, and then the foxes would sneak in and then eat the leftovers. And what it looked like, what it looked like was that the fox was pretending that he was a lion and he made the kill. So there's a common saying. Uh, it's, it's lost on us in English, but it actually rhymes in the original language. But <clears throat> it says, better be the tail of a lion than the head of a fox. Better to be the tail of a lion than the head of a fox. And so a fox was seen as this poser. So, with that in context, Pharisees come to Jesus and say, Hey, get out of here. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. And so Jesus says, Go tell that fox. This is a huge deal. What Jesus is saying is that, man, he's a wannabe. He's a wannabe king. He's not a ruler like Caesar. He's not even a monarch like his dad, Herod the Great. Do you know what he is, technically? What Caesar made him wasn't a monarch like Herod the Great. He made him a tetrarch. A tetrarch. Do you know what a tetrarch is? A quarter king. Mini-me. Like he made him like junior. Go tell that fox. And everybody knew what he was talking about. Jesus was saying that on this earth, he has some power as a tetrarch. But man, in the real kingdom, the real kingdom that you guys will understand one day, he is nothing. He's nothing. He's the wrong kind of power in the wrong kind of kingdom. And this kingdom is coming down. Go tell that fox, man, this is not flannel graph Jesus. This is not Ned Flanders Jesus. This isn't beauty pageant sash Jesus. Listen to the defiance in Jesus' voice. Go tell that fox, Herod Antipas is a joke. Go tell that fox. So who plays the role of Herod Antipas in your life? Seriously. Who plays the role of Herod Antipas in your life? What threat or fear or seduction or sin pattern in your life is keeping you from being fully devoted to this man, Jesus? From living with courage, from living with passion, having a reckless following of Jesus, 
What threat or sin pattern or seduction or person or fear in your life is keeping you from really being dangerous? My prayer for you today is that you would go tell that fuck, that poser. They have no power. They have no power. Face up to your fear. Face up to your sin. Face up to your insecurity. So here's the crazy thing. If you were one of Jesus' disciples in that moment, man, this is a powerful moment. Go tell that fox. And if I'm Jesus, I'm going, go tell that fox I'm the real lion. Right? Go tell that fox Aslan's on the move. Right? Go tell that fox the real lion has just come to town. You better get, get running. It's not what Jesus says. He says the weirdest thing. He says, go tell that fox. I'm going to keep on doing this today and tomorrow until I reach my goal. In the very next verse, he says this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You can keep that up there. So what he says is, go tell that fox that I'm like a mother hen. Weird, right? And if you're one of the disciples, you're going, hmm... Let's rework that a little bit. See where you're going. Let's, good start. Let's kind of work on the ending, right? Go tell that fox, I'm like a mother hen. Why would Jesus say this? In this moment is defiance, but also the gospel. Because when a fox goes into a hen house, when a fox goes into a hen house, and there's a mother hen, there's a bunch of little chicks, the hen doesn't know jujitsu. Right? What can the hen do? Hen doesn't have a katana nearby. What can the hen do? All a hen can do is gather all the chicks under her wings, lay down her life, and then hope that when the fox is sat is done with her, he's satisfied enough and leaves the chicks alone. And what Jesus is saying is, Jerusalem, this is what I've wanted to do for you. That real power is not in meeting his power with better power, meeting his knife with a gun. Real power is saying, all right, I'll lay down my life. This is a story of the gospel, the story of the kingdom, what we're a part of, what Jesus has said, do this, live this way, lead this way. The story of our lives, the story of the gospel, is the story of a fox and a hen. See, Jesus knew it. He knew what would happen if he went to Jerusalem during Passover and talking about kingdom. He knew what would happen if he started talking about Herod Antipas and Archelaus this way. Rome was very consistent with the way they handled situations like this. Herod and his boys were very consistent about the handled people that talked against him. It would happen to John, it happened to John the Baptist. And it would happen to Jesus. Jesus knew that when he talked this way, he was pronouncing his own death sentence. But what's amazing about Jesus, what's unbelievable about Jesus, is the, this is the way he did his whole ministry. He befriended sinners when no one else would. He would heal lepers. He would love and bless children when they were throwaways. This was the ministry of a man who knew with utter certainty that he was going to die because of what he kept saying. And you know what he did? He kept saying it. He kept living it. I don't know about you, but does that make you proud to follow a man like that? We don't follow a book. We don't follow a myth. 
we follow a man, Jesus, who kept on doing this and doing this until he ended up on the cross. And he was crucified and he was raised again and he was more dangerous than ever. Then he ascended into heaven and the people that followed him, the chicks started getting dangerous too. Stephen got dangerous. They had to execute him. James and Peter and on and on and on. They kept on being dangerous. And Rome kept on trying to kill him, kept on trying to shut him down, and they got more and more dangerous. And the only reason why you and I are here today in Redwood City is because countless people from then until now lived dangerously, not comfortably. And the gospel got to us. The crazy thing about all of this is that Herod should never have heard about Jesus again. I mean, but the really wild thing is the only reason why most people even know the name Herod is because of his relation to Jesus. Isn't that ironic? The king of the Jews, the monarch, the only reason why most people even know he exists. Isn't he that guy in the Christmas story when Jesus was born? So how about you? Here's a question I want to give you as we end here. And I want to hope it bothers you. How dangerous do you want to be? How dangerous do you want to be? Think about this man, Jesus, that we just talked about for the last while. Do you think that he's going to lead you to a life of comfort? Do you think that he's going to lead you to a life of, of ease? Really? Really? If you were to come up with a number between 1 and 10, how dangerous would you say you're living? And I know you can give me all the excuses. We'll talk in this stage of life right now, and here's why, and here's why it makes sense. And Sure, sure, whatever helps you sleep at night. Are you following Jesus? Like, really, not, I'm a Christian, you just go to church services. Jesus didn't die on the cross and say, follow me, warm a seat in a building for 90 minutes once a week. Sing some songs once a week. He said, hey, follow me. Do what I do. If you were to come up with a number one to ten, how dangerous would you say you're living? And where do you think, where do you think God is calling you to live a little more dangerously? Would you be willing to do one thing this week? Don't overthink it. Would you be willing to do one thing this week that would cause you to push back on a significant fear? Maybe something you feel like the Spirit of the Lord has been telling you maybe for years that you're supposed to be doing something. And you've given, oh, here's why it won't work. Here's why this season, here's why situation's not right. Okay, sure. But what if you could? Would you be willing to do one thing this week to push back on a significant fear? One thing that would make you say, go tell that fox. And here's what I think will happen. If you do, even just one little thing, you'll find that Jesus is with you. And what you'll find is something stirring in your heart maybe I'm called to live in a more dangerous way. So we're going to end by singing this song, Reckless Love, which is so appropriate. Not comfortable love. Like the the end of it is the reason why we're here is because we follow a man who embraced discomfort, who emptied himself of his rights, of his power, of his prestige, of his privilege, so that you could have something 
so that I could have something that we can never get on our own. And then he says, go and do likewise. Lay down your pride, your prestige. Lay down your, your resources. Lay down your talents. Lay down your ambition, your ego. Empty yourself so that someone else, someone else can have something what they can never have unless you lived dangerously. This is what we do. And so we're going to sing about reckless love, and I hope it inspires you to go, man, I need to live that way too. Can I pray for us? And then we'll sing this to, together to close, all right? God, we just... We want to follow you, God. I mean, really follow you. We don't want to just cuss less than we used to. We don't want to just be nicer than we used to. All that's great. God, we want to follow you. We want, when people see us, God, I pray that they would see the character of Christ. When, they, when people see the way we live, would they say, that's exactly the way Jesus lived. We give every breath, God, from this moment to our last, to you as worship. And we say, God, would you use our lives to further your kingdom, to make a difference in the world. Don't let us be lulled to sleep by comfort and our convenience, but help us to live dangerously for you, uncomfortably for you. Call us to the hard places for you. We choose to embrace discomfort so others can know you. Help us, God. Carry your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's, uh, let's stand. Let's sing this together.